Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wrote a column over the weekend in which I mentioned that I'm not religious and I'm hearing from lots of people that want to save me. I really don't need saving. I'm perfectly fine. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston, who really needs saving was OSU. My question is, is it better to play in the national championship and lose in such humiliating fashion or to not have played at all? I'm thinking the latter. Yeah, I mean, I it, their their victory was so sweet the last the last time, but you know this was just just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. They didn't belong on the same field. I mean, there was like yeah. there was like a professional team and a bunch of high school kids. Um, that was it was embarrassing. But we have the Browns, so let's move forward <laughs> with pro Trump protests threatened in state capitals around the country. Are Columbus police planning to be ready for trouble? Chris Warnowski. There's so much mystery about this. In the Capitol during the, the insurrection last week, police were completely unprepared or intentionally unprepared. But it seems like this week everybody is is girding up for this. But there's still thoughts that this could get ugly. What uh, what are Columbus police doing to protect the Capitol? Right. So they are preparing uh, for several uh, protest protests this weekend uh, that are supposed to be a part of a national movement, including including protests, another demonstration in D.C., which is being billed as the largest armed demonstration in U.S. history. Sunday in particular is the day that that um, the Columbus police spokesman said that the police are, are most concerned about. That's the day that the armed protesters are preparing to demonstrate there and in every state capital. But basically, he said uh, that the department is going to and, and other law enforcement agencies are going to be focusing on the entire weekend based on the information that they're seeing. Um, and Columbus is one that was sing- singled out in particular on social media and right-wing websites that basically people want to go and protest there. Columbus police met with officials uh, and other central Ohio law enforcement agencies on Monday afternoon to coordinate and plan how to respond to the protest, which, you know, I think given what happened last week, I think there's going to be a, a, a pretty significant presence and a, and a lot of a caution taking taking place. Um, what's fascinating is if you go and you look in some right-wing circles, they are now claiming that people should not attend these demonstrations because they're actually a secret government plot to take your guns. <laughs> so, so maybe word is getting around that they, they, and, and, you know, that will stoke some paranoia among the already paranoid that, you know, they'll stay home and these things won't happen. But I, I, I doubt it's going to make any difference to police who in watching, you know, the, the shipshod 
response to what happened last week in DC. I, I nobody wants that in their city. I don't think. The amazing thing to me here is that all of this, all these thousands of people are all basing all this passion on a complete fiction that the election was stolen and in their worship of a guy who was pretty much a madman at this point. It's it's like the Salem witch trials gone national. Thousands and thousands of people ready to march armed through state capitals to demand something that is based on fiction. What what world do we live in? I mean, we all marveled at people who refused to wear masks last year or this year because they're risking the coronavirus. And it was just but it's like we have a madness in this land that is really infecting a large part of our population. And I just don't get it. Well, I think the Venn diagram of the people who were complaining about wearing masks and the people who want a violent (laughs) insurrection of the government is a perfect circle. Like there's, it is the same kind of, of conspiracy. It is all born in the same disgusting bowels of the internet driven by the same disgusting weirdos who used to hang out in places like 4chan and 8chan and, and all of those. And, 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 you know, and parlor, which was the mainstream version of those things. And, but now, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, a, a lot of those accounts and, and things like that have been taken down by Twitter. You know, if you if you have a favorite conservative lawmaker, I assume they were on Twitter yesterday complaining that they were losing a lot of followers. And what they were complaining about losing were QAnon bots and and violent rhetoric bots that were pu- pushing conspiracy theories. So the echo chamber that has so devastated public discourse that's what that was coming down just it's crazy i uh i really hope that we don't see it next week uh, we're talking about how we want to cover it i don't want any of our reporters in harm's way and these people are saying reporters are soft targets take them out it's a it's a scary time you're listening to this week in the cle president donald trump gave jim jordan the nation's highest honor yesterday the medal of freedom has Jordan's tune on the rigged election changed any over the past few weeks, or is he still peddling false claims? Jane Cahoon, on the day Jim Jordan got this, and a lot of people don't think he's deserving of it because of what it was designed for, our reporter Sabrina Eaton put together kind of a chronology of what his statements have been. While many of his colleagues have pulled back from the nonsense, he doesn't seem to have. No, I'd, I'd say the narrative has shifted a little bit, but the but the essence of it hasn't changed as far as his loyalty to Trump, despite the horror that we saw last week at the U.S. Capitol. So beforehand, Jordan, you probably know, pushed Trump's case that the presidential election results from Arizona and five other states should be thrown out. And on on the floor of of Congress uh, that afternoon of the riots, he he pushed the completely false narrative of a stolen election. His quotes were... (laughs) were just ridiculous. I mean, he said Americans instinctively know there was something wrong with this election. And he was citing like the size of Trump's rallies to make the point that he couldn't have lost because Trump was, you know, reckless with his rallies during the coronavirus and allowed, you know, hundreds of people to to, to gather together where Joe Biden did not. But he said, President Trump got 11 million more votes than he did in 2016. And and House Republicans won 27 of 27 toss-up races, but somehow the guy who never left his house wins the election. And, you know, he he went on from there. But he also accused Democrats of, of making election changes that he said were unconstitutional to, to make sure that Trump lost. And he said, you know, we have to act to make sure it doesn't happen again. We're the, we're the final check and, 
and balance, you know. And then, um, so then after his speech, this riot happened, of course, where they, the rioters stormed the Capitol and he was taken off to a, a secure location. And at that time, he, he tweeted, you know, the violence is wrong and people should support police. But, you know, once again, he didn't hold Trump accountable in any way for, for what happened, for inciting any of that. And then when, when the Congress was finally able to return to do its business in, in finalizing the election, Jordan voted against certifying the votes in both Arizona and Pennsylvania when those, when those came up for a vote. And then since then, he's, he's gone on Fox News and continued to avoid criticizing Trump in, in any way, you know, blaming the rioters, saying people are responsible for their own action and they need to be held accountable and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And then here's another part, Chris, that might make your head explode. He, he said Republicans have been consistent in criticizing violent demonstrations. Well, he said, you know, Democrats have justified violence that happened like at Black Lives Matter protests. And then he said, you know, we just need to calm down and unify the country. So those are really unifying words, don't you? you? Well, you know, I've been thinking we should do a special episode just on him because so many people are focused on him and he's a standard bearer for Trump. But forget for a moment that he is an elected federal person who is seeking to disenfranchise states full of voters. What he's peddling is demonstrably and fully false. There was no stealing of the election. It's been audited to death. There's nothing there. So there's one of two things to explain what he's doing. He's either a buffoon who's buying the nonsense and then really probably shouldn't be in Congress if you're that much of a buffoon, or he's sinister, that he knows it's false and he's doing it to push politics over country. And that's despicable. If he's doing it for the sinister reasons, it's really bad. And that's why he's a lightning rod. I hear from people all the time asking us to do more stories on him because they think he is so dastardly that he he knows what he's doing, but it's all ends justify the means because it keeps our party in power and he worships Trump like he's an idol. I mean, Jim Jordan getting the Medal of Freedom, this is supposed to be for people who've done truly great things. What has Jim Jordan ever done to put him into the company of Sister Teresa and Martin Luther King? Right. That was his reward yesterday. And, um, you know, a White House statement called him an inspiration to freedom-loving Americans everywhere and uh, somebody who's distinguished himself as one of the most consequential members of Congress of his generation. It's Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I I just, I feel like he is, he's kind of like Trump in that, he doesn't really do anything and, and he's just a, a person we talk about and, and he fundraises and, and benefits from the fact that, you know, the media coverage of him is largely puts him on the defensive and he can say the media beats me up. He's a pundit. He's like Matt Gates. It's like, well, what have you done as a legislator? Like, what have you done to help people in your state? What have you done? And, and all of that, if he does have accomplishments, it gets overridden by the fact that he's just, He's on TV constantly, you know, spewing uh, you know, vile conspiracy theories out of his pie hole. So, you know, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a catch 22, you know, it's like, do you, do you give him more attention and, and, and focus on him or, you know, maybe, maybe the way we focus on him is wrong. Like maybe we look at his records and say, this is who he is and this is what he does. And, and it's not, it's probably not that much. But he did take an oath to the constitution. 
and he is seeking to overthrow the Constitution. I look, the, 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 the idea that you're going to throw out votes so that Donald Trump can be continue to be president is destroying your democracy. And and no end of people in his own party, including Mitch McConnell, have said that. And yet, after the the insurrection sparked by the president, after all we've seen, he stands by it and proudly takes the Medal of Freedom, which, you know, is pretty much forever stained by the likes of him and Rush Limbaugh getting it. Thank God that the uh, the coach of the New England Patriots turned it down when he learned he was going to be given it Thursday. Okay, let's move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How can Cleveland State University defend hiring Douglas Dykes to a $140,000 a year job when he left his job with Cuyahoga County in disgrace, having pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice and having lied on official documents. Laura Johnston, this one boggles my mind. I mean, this is a guy who admitted being deceptive in an official role on the taxpayer dime, and CSU gives him a $140,000 job. We've got 1.3 million people in this county. You couldn't find somebody who was more deserving of that position than Douglas Dykes? Yeah, CSU says they believe in giving second chances to talented people. That's their explanation. Yeah, you know what? The second chances? <laughs> you can go work at a convenience store. I mean, it's like you don't get a second chance at a $140,000 job when you have abused the public trust. And this is still a public job. CSU is a public university. Um, like you said, that he's the former human resources chief, and he pleaded guilty only six months ago uh, to misdemeanor charges, instead he, and then he started working at CSU um, December 14th. What gives this story even a crazier twist is that that was seven months after County Executive Armin Budish filled Dyke's vacant county job with a guy from CSU, the former chief of human resources there, named Jesse Drucker. So it was like this weird swap almost. I mean, they're not the exact same jobs, but um, the job was publicly posted. Dykes was among 38 people who applied for it. Um, But like you said, he resigned from the county in January 2020 after quietly repaying the county more than $10,000. He was accused of stealing. That quietly repaying thing, that's nonsense. He lied when he repaid it. Let's go back to the beginning. There was an out of control investigation started started by the county prosecutor, moved to the attorney general that was charging him with theft because he gave a guy a bonus that that violated the the county rules, but was approved by his boss, the county executive. So he didn't get anything. It's the first case I've ever heard of where somebody's indicted for theft where they don't get anything. We defied them to come up with another case and they couldn't. So he was it was a bogus charge. But then for reasons we'll never understand, he he was under this pressure. He he repays ten thousand dollars and tries to make it on official documents look like it came from somebody else. That's a lie. That's a deception, and it is an obstruction of justice. So he doesn't get convicted of the felony theft because that was complete crap. But he, but he does get convicted of having no character and no integrity and doing this deceptive thing. So, so it wasn't like he quietly repaid it. He lied about the way it was repaid. And now his reward is $140,000 a year. I don't get it. I mean, it does seem incomprehensible. And then in the meantime, he had worked for this, the Cleveland Healthcare Center neighborhood family practice. He was a vice president of human resources and a chief diversity officer there. So it looks like he got this very cushy landing from a very public letting go. And, and yeah, he's landed on his feet. 
It's a stunner, and it's one of the reasons we hear from people all the time that they don't trust their government because this is not responsible. And they didn't announce it. You know, we we had to hear about it through a tip and then go track it down. Right. It's not and like, it's not like I mean, this is a public job at this point at CSU. Obviously, it took us a little bit to get to it, but like, it, it, there was no way they were going to get away with it long term. I just I don't understand why they think that they're not going to hear a lot of blowback for this. And it is weird how they swapped people. We got to look into that. What what is going on? Where the county gets the CSU guy and CSU gets the county guy? I mean, was that was that organized or is that just coincidence? We'll figure it out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The former public utilities chief of Ohio, Sam Randazzo, didn't just have his fingers in the first energy bailout. Now we come to learn he was messing with proposed wind farms in a way that benefited a former client. Jane Cahoon, the, the Sam Randazzo influence in HB6, I think this is going to continue to develop. Andrew Tobias put together an interesting story about something that's not really related to the nuclear bailout, but it is related to the nuclear bailout bill. Yes, it is. This was a result of some emails that were recently released. They were subpoenaed by federal authorities in the investigation of House Bill 6, the tainted nuclear bailout law that um, that uh, First Energy helped uh, finance with bribes, according to federal authorities. Uh, they do, I, I would maybe correct one thing. It doesn't look like Randazzo was successful in messing with the wind farms because the language didn't make it in. However, the emails show that while he was serving as chairman of the PUCO, he he was behind the scenes trying to amend House Bill 6 before it passed to hurt renewable energy projects while, while helping this former client that had just lost a big court case. Uh, so he sent emails to House staff suggesting these wording revisions and really trying to add new language to the bill to make it harder for wind energy projects to get exceptions to setback rules that require a certain amount of distance between windmills and adjoining property. As I said, it didn't make it into the the final bill, but it would have benefited his former client, which was a group of Huron County property owners who were trying to fight um, state approval for, for a wind farm. He had filed the case on their behalf with the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, he did withdraw from it six, six months uh, earlier when, when Governor Mike DeWine named him PUCO chief. And then the Ohio Supreme Court ended up ruling against those property owners. And Randazzo in these emails, you know, kind of made it clear he wasn't happy about that, that ruling. So, so he suggested this language, by the way, using a private email address, not his PUCO email address that, that would have required adjoining property owners to approve any waivers to these setback rules. So as you can imagine, renewable energy advocates, and they've long criticized him as an opponent of their efforts. They just called this out as totally inappropriate. You know, when the Justice Department um, unveiled the HB6 investigation by raiding the House Speaker's house and and then quickly indicting a bunch of people, there was a lot of smoke that kind of identified other people as potential targets. And some of the stuff we've learned about Randazzo is very suspicious. They've raided his house. But there's been shockingly little movement out of that investigation over the last few months. And you start to wonder whether they're they're not going to follow the smoke, whether they're 
going to wrap up what they have and, and let the rest go, which would be distressing because there's a lot of questions about this. I mean, this this thing stinks. This this smells what Andrew wrote about. And it seems like it's something the feds should be interested in. Um, you know, we have a separate thing we wrote about last week where there's now a tie to Cleveland and the attack on Cleveland public power. But you don't get the sense that anybody but us is looking into that. Do we have any indication that there there's movement in this investigation? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if there are still some charges coming. Uh, you know, the federal authorities often wait until like after a big election like we had, you know, until the smoke clears from that. So I'm more of the mind that I, I think this is still going somewhere. But, you know, that's just my my hunch. Chris, we're not- I, I think the issue is, is that it goes it goes a lot of places. And I think that and the more you look into this, the more complicated it gets and the the more it kind of sprawls out. It's like smoke. It starts out concentrated toward the ground. And as you get far away from it, it really spreads out over a lot of real estate. So, you know, this is a, a I mean, just in in the reporting process of it, it's 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 it goes everywhere and it's really complicated. So I think. I, you know, I'm not saying like half the legislature or, you know, the entire board, <laughs> board of directors is going to go to jail or anything like that. But I think I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of different pathways that this is leading to. And and so I, I think the complicated nature of it sort of makes it uh, something that's going to take time to investigate. Well, we're following them. I just hope that the feds are. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We finally know who bought Nighttown, the Cleveland Heights Jazz Club and Restaurant. Chris Ronowski, does the identity of the new owner give us a clue as to the identity of the big-time chef that might be coming in to help the place out? It might. Um, uh, you know, a, a, just to, to go back a little bit before we sort of hint at who, <laughs> who it might be, um, um, a, a real-life real estate group, which an uh, investor, Rico uh, Pitro, I believe is how it's pronounced, uh, bought the storied Cedar Road nightclub and two properties directly to the east of it. The The purchase includes 16 apartments above Nighttown, a beauty salon, a construction company office, a parking lot, and a former fifth, third bank that is going to be, uh, it's going to become a Chipotle. I think it's going to be the one that replaces the one that left uh, the, the uh, uh, where was it? Like the one next to the grog shop up the street. So, the the new owners and previous owner uh, Brendan Ring finalized the sale on December 31st. There wasn't a sale price listed for any of the buildings, and and uh, one of the new owners de- declined to say. A, a guy by the name of James Asmis, uh, he declined to say how much uh, they had paid for it. But um, they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of you know good feeling about the the neighborhood and the property, and it's. It's a uh, being close to the university, the Case Western over there. So um, they're happy about it. Um, this company also owns several other properties throughout downtown. Um, they own apartment buildings, and they also own a building that that includes the restaurant Parallax, uh, a restaurant in Tremont that is owned by Zach Brule, and and they also own several other properties in Florida. So there's a there's a they, you know, they're they're a pretty pretty big time real estate group. They're growing, but um, they also, I think they say they they have offices. They're Israeli based as well, so there's there's a foreign element to this as well. But well, if Zach Brule comes to Cleveland Heights, that could make for an interesting new club. It'll be, uh, we don't know if they'll keep the jazz 
side of it, which has brought a lot of people there. But uh, but Zach Brule would be a big name. They're not saying it's him. Could be somebody else, but they do have a relationship. It's this week in the CLE. I've been predicting that July 4th will be this nation's coming out party post-pandemic. Sounds like some experts say I'm off base, Lord Johnston, but I think they're wrong. I think that people's spirit is indomitable. And by July 4th, people are going to break out. Enough will be vaccinated and we'll be able to go to fireworks and be outside and have a good time. So uh, th- there are a bunch of people that throw cold water on that. What do they say? They're not saying you're wrong exactly. Just that that is an optimistic timeline, and they they think things need to go well for that to to be true. But they do agree the outlook's going to look much better by summer, especially because the virus spreads less easily when we're outside in warm weather. But they think that plenty of restrictions will still be in place. Like we'll probably still be wearing masks indoors. Uh, but this is hugely dependent on what percentage of eligible people choose to be vaccinated. So Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, actually told The Atlantic, he actually said July 4th that he wants to host a backyard barbecue. He says it won't be normal, but it won't be like the 4th of July 2020. Uh, We talked to some more local people. Dr. Amy Edwards at UH says that if numbers in the area are low, everyone's vaccinated according to plan, then outdoor gatherings should be mostly safe. Um, And we talked to um, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, said he thinks things could be safe for gatherings in July. But again, it just it depends on how we act right now. Um, And Dr. Fauci has said it's going to take a lot, like 85 percent of the available, the eligible people to get vaccinated in order to be back to normal by the end of 2021. And we're not seeing those kind of percentages right now. Yeah, I just think people are going to insist on it. Jane Kuhn, one thing's for sure. The legislature's attempt to force county fairs to go on has been stopped by Mike DeWine. He may allow them. He may not. But what happened there with the veto yesterday? Yes, this is true. Mike DeWine vetoed a bill that that would have overridden his coronavirus order, you know, putting a hold on county fairs. And he said, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. I don't like doing this, but it was necessary so that we can continue to work collaboratively on a, a reopening plan. So he, he's not saying they have to be closed this summer, but he's saying, you know, don't tread on my power to, to, you know, keep this order in place while we, while we talk about this. All right. We're not going to get to the CSU discussion because we need to talk about the optics of this. <laughs> the veto the veto is a dramatic act. They, they, you know, executives don't use it a lot. Donald Trump didn't use one until very, very recently in his whole four years. So to veto this while a week ago signing the sta- the very controversial stand your ground bill that is proven to increase death and suffering boggles my mind. Yeah, And, I mean, and he also had signaled that he was going to veto stand your ground. So we really had been expecting him to, to veto that. And not that this this county fair thing wasn't really a surprise, but the but the stand your ground thing was. I, I just the optics, it's, you know, I, I'm going to allow people to shoot away, you know, even though it's been demonstrated, this often affects many more black people than it does white people. And it's, you know, not necessary because there's plenty of self-defense laws on the books. Signs that and a week later vetoes the state fair or the county fair bill. It just um, looks. Could I also for... say that that yesterday when he vetoed the county fair thing, he also signed another bill. Like, I guess he's he's in favor of people's right to defend themselves, but maybe not so much uh, their right to stage an environmental protest because he signed this bill that would 
clamp down on that. Like it would, I think it would upgrade, you know, like mere trespassing on, you know, pipeline areas or areas of critical infrastructure. It's a, it was model legislation that Republican legislatures have passed all around the country that, um, you know, makes it more difficult for environmentalists and others to, to stage protests at, you know, right. power plant I, it, pipelines. It's a trampling of free speech. The laws already existed to stop you from doing that. It'll be interesting to see if these survive court challenges you're listening to this week in the CLE. Hey, let's let's use the last few minutes. I, I, I think we've all talked about this month how sick we are of the pandemic restrictions. We're just sick of it. So what do you think? Do you really think that come summer, if the government says, yeah, yeah, yeah July 4th, stay home, that anybody in America is going to listen to them? I've been I've been thinking about this since we we started working on the story and then looking at like the predictions for um, what the curve is going to look like. And I think I, I'm going through my own little mini realization that I did, went through last spring that I, I, I still don't think summer is going to be normal. I think it's going to feel a lot better. If you look at how you feel now compared to how you felt in the summer, like it was just freer. You could be outside, but I don't think they're going to open everything up and you know, I think people are still going to be wearing masks, especially if we look at like how slow this vaccination is going. Well, I mean, the vaccination's got to speed up because it's it's a disaster so far, especially in Ohio. We got to do more work on this. Everybody wants to hear about that. But I, I just think people are fed up. And when summer comes, they're going to want to do stuff. And July 4th is our signature date. We didn't have a July 4th last year. There were no fireworks. We were in the in the crux of the, the beginning of the, not quite the beginning, but people were, were learning all the rules. I just don't think anybody's going to listen come July 4th. There's going to be enough vaccine out there. All, the, the, most, the most vulnerable populations will have been vaccinated. And yeah, may, maybe people will wear masks. But I, I just don't think they'll be denied. I think that um, the, the spirit will be there. I mean, what do you think, Chris Wernowski? You're as radical as anybody I know. Do you think people are going to come out of the woodwork on this? Thanks. I don't know. Um, I Look at the pictures last night from Alabama and the celebration. Down there <laughs> right, after the game. Exactly. I mean, I, I think we're already beyond the point of people being, you know, it, it's like, it's, you know, imagine if the Browns win the Super Bowl this year. What do you think right. this city will look like? It will, right. it will, it will look like what happened when the. I think I feel like we would have a Cavs level kind of celebration. I mean, this is a much bigger football town than it is a basketball town. I feel like sometimes, and 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 the and the Browns drought is much you know much drier. So I I feel like there you know stuff like that does not give me a lot of optimism for the future. Well, you heard it here first. I think July 4th will be the coming out party. We got to move on. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will be back with another episode tomorrow.